This episode of AVXL was recorded on February 28th, 2019. We're going to talk about the death of discs and is video excellence doomed? Well, that's the big one for this show. Stay tuned. Testing one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Well, Navy Excel, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patty Norton. Ooh, I am Robert Harris. And this is episode 100. <sighs> this is going to be a little shorter than our average episode because some things were announced this week. We'll get to those in a moment involving Samsung and Blu-ray players and a lot of panic. Ensued. Ensued. But, uh, and a few of your viewer questions. A few viewer oh, questions. Listener questions. Viewer, listener Consumer. Consumer questions. People. Questions directed at us. Beloved listeners. You should <laughs> yeah. before we get any Patient farther. Astray, and beloved listeners. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, the uh it's uh I'm I'm laughing because I, I keep trying to watch the same episode of the Umbrella Academy, which is this really okay. it's it's a comic book, got turned into a series on Netflix. I am deeply fascinated by it, and I keep falling asleep because of, of fundamental exhaustion. But it's interesting. Between that and Roma, it's just fascinating for me for Netflix uh, right now. But we'll talk about that. It's a good moment. In a moment. You got eyeballs on uh, Samsung's Q90R. They had an announcement party. and But I have seen this tech at CES mm-hmm. back in January in Las Vegas, where they showed off a prototype with no name, camouflaged, a appropriately. <laughs> the neatest thing about the Q90R that is currently available for pre-order, if you wish, one size, 65 inches, 3500 bucks. This is effectively the flagship 4K TV for right. 2019. Likely one of the very best LCDs that we're going to see this year. This will also include in the new series a Q80 and a Q70 with reduced features and, of course, a more affordable price to go along with it. The big thing about the Q90, more zones of local dimming, using smaller LEDs and more of them to provide an even greater granularity to the backlighting system. Probably the biggest thing, though, will be the ultra-viewing angle technology. Now, this is pretty fascinating. Ultra-viewing angle technology? Ultra-viewing angle. The bane of all LCDs (laughs) is off-axis viewing. You you get off to the side with a bright object on the screen, especially when the background is dark or black. You see the backlight glow. It just makes a big halo around it, unless you sit front and center every time. I'm not going to say that this was the equivalent of OLED in a side-by-side comparison, but it was damn close. It was more impressive than any LCD I have seen to date. Samsung was even brave enough to put this side-by-side with a Q9FN, which was their flagship from last year. All around, it looked good. Talking extreme light output, you're going to have your HDR10 support, HDR10 Plus, shipping early March, and more sizes besides 65-inch, likely coming later this year. It's always so. curious for me to look at how technology kind of like bumps forward and stagnates and bumps forward. Because just about the time I thought planar magnetic headphones were just going to wipe the floor with dynamic headphones, Focal came out with its moonshot headphones, the Utopia. And I was like, oh, look at that. The technology's not dead yet. And in this case, Samsung, who's been pretty pissed, as we've pointed out for a while, at not getting the Super Austin Bestest TV of the Year awards because LG was picking all those up and putting them in a closet or a mantelpiece or wherever LG puts its, you know, virtual rewards from websites or real rewards. Maybe they print out trophies, but... uh, Oh, yes. There are trophy rooms at all of these companies. At all of these companies. Obviously, we should come up with a trophy series so we can point to our trophies next to the (laughs) the other ones. You must hand them a gift. A gift. (laughs) Bestow upon them. 
a gift for their glory. But but it's interesting, right? Because Samsung refused to give up the technology. And it's interesting for me to watch how, you know, you think like, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's plateaued. It's done. And then boom. Samsung's not a risk taker, so to right. speak. They are more comfortable perfecting LCD technology to whatever level they can take it, especially if it's not going to require a complete reinvestment in a brand new technology that's in a brand new manufacturing facility. However, they are the number one OLED smartphone display maker. Right. And nobody makes a better display than they do with an OLED panel. Granted, it's mobile device sized. And we talked about on the last episode how coming out very soon will be a 15.6 inch OLED screen that they're manufacturing for notebook manufacturers. Right. That will be their first step. And then hopefully within, say, a year, we'll see a demo, hopefully a public demo, of a TV using similar technology. In the case of Samsung's OLED technology, it will be a blue backlight system going through a quantum dot color converter, unlike what LG does currently with a, a whitish material that then mm-hmm. goes through a fourth subpixel color filter, that RGB and white <laughs> subpixel. So... A lot to see coming up this year regarding both OLED technology and just when you think LCD's dead, Samsung just keeps eking right. out technology just to take care of some of the niggling concerns and things that people really don't like about it. Right. Well, it, still, it can do the light output. It, it's got superior light output. Right. I mean, these are used all over the world for mastering but displays. But be as black? LCDs can do very good color and light, but it's I, that off-axis viewing that just annoys us all. I, I still think the the fun one is just the whole idea of the two million seventy three thousand six hundred pixel backlighting system on that high sense monitor when they <laughs> smirched yeah. the four K panel with the ten eighty p panel. panel. That's another way of doing it. And you know, this is going to require on Samsung's part for the Q ninety R. There are a lot more LEDs to work with, so they can be a little more granular. And hopefully, their software algorithms for making potential Halo artifacts right. minimized as much as possible is going to be key. The demos looked great; they were super impressive. Now. I just want to see this in a store. I want to see a retail shipping model in a box. I don't want a hand-selected unit. I want to see it raw and unfiltered. And off to Costco they went. Heck yeah. We're to camp out in Costco. And nah, I don't have anything else to say about that TV. It's a good one. <laughs> in, Looking forward to it. <laughs> at D. Kutka retweeted an article from CNET to us. And the CNET article is pretty succinct. Has Samsung killed the blu-ray disc that was the tweet actually the title of the article uh tyle pendlebury wrote this one up samsung kills blu-ray players blame streaming smart tvs and apple and this led to a lot of what i will affectionately call hand wringing on the interwebs um Rending of clothing, gnashing of teeth, wailing, you know, all the things we do and something we love appears to be dead. The players are dying. Well, I don't think so. Yeah, so basically Samsung, I want to say about a week ago, week and a half ago, announced that they were done. No more new 1080p, no more 4K Blu-ray players. Now, Ty's line, and I think it's probably an accurate assessment, he says, quote, if you're looking for the canary in the video disc coal mine, it doesn't get any bigger than this. That's a good line. It's a good line. Um... I think Samsung had just kept it around just right. to say they could have one. And here's our branded product. But in the end, it was rarely something I would recommend to anyone just because for the long run, at least, it would be better to either have one that's compatible with Dolby Vision right. and and HDR10, well, that, HDR10+, plus, whatever. That was the first thing I, I was you pointed out to And me, Samsung was, was like, never going to build one to support Dolby Vision, at least not in the short term here. Why? So, they don't have a TV that supports that format. So oh, it's, just, yeah, it's not in their interest. Oh, so funny. it's like, I, even if I had a Samsung TV, I probably wouldn't have been looking for a Samsung right. Blu-ray player to go with it. Although it, it makes the connection and everything nice and convenient and easy. <laughs> but yeah, I'd be looking at something more along the lines of 
nowadays, Sony and LG, right. of course, who both make increasingly affordable players. And I imagine there isn't much money to be made on these products. They're probably all loss leaders. That Every was... sinking one of them, except for probably Oppo back in the day. Right. But yeah, where are they? They're, They're gone. They made a premium product and... It, they couldn't sell enough of them, or it was never simply profitable to do so. so. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's and, and I, something we haven't talked about in a while, but there is not a lot of money being made in the television division of any consumer electronics manufacturer. I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's, except for maybe some of the high-end models, as we understand it, Samsung's phone sales pretty much subsidize their television sales. You know, and it's frustrating. And I also get some of the reaction people had, they're like, oh, one of the things I do is, I, you know, I, at least once a month, I cruise Best Buy, I cruise Target, I try to hit a Walmart, various and sundry places that constitute the bulk of the sales in brick and mortar stores. Now, you could argue that, you know, 50%, there's a, there's a huge amount of retail sales now that happens through Amazon and other line, online sources, no doubt. I'm checking their sales bin. It's interesting to see how, for example, Best Buy restructures itself, because as Best Buy changes things, that's a sign of where the money is in retail. Every single six inches or whatever measurement, vendors pay a lot of money to have their widget on a board full of widgets, uh, a rack full of widgets at Best Buy. Like some of the numbers have been quoted 15 years ago, you could easily spend 50 grand to get like a product into Best Buy. I think it's it's even worse now. I wouldn't, yeah, of course. Um, that's you very, know, very competitive. It's extremely competitive. And it they, has almost no influence on me personally, but true. I understand. But, <laughs> you, but it's also interesting, right? Because you can also misinterpret that because as the car audio area shrunk, I was like, oh, you know, car stereos are dead. And a few months later, this is a couple of years ago, I was talking to one of the VPs at Panasonic and he was like, yeah, we, we sold 11 million car stereos last year. I believe that was number seven million. As long as Crutchfield's alive, there yes. will always be car stereos. <laughs> there will always be car stereos. So, but it's an interesting and observation of all is, is that much like department stores became less important, in some cases, these sort of general purpose electronics stores Obviously, most of them have died off, right? CompUSA tried to be Best Buy and Circuit City and spiraled downhill. Uh, Circuit City just spiraled downhill. And, and Best Buy seems to have learned a lot. And it's still an interesting place. It's still one of the places where, one of the only places where just about anywhere in the United States, you can drive for a couple hours and see like a Magnolia Hi-Fi or a Magnolia Design Center and see a fairly sophisticated setup. When it comes um, to disc players for me personally, though, it almost doesn't matter who makes it as long as it's made properly. Right. And it supports the few formats I need it to do. Yeah. I, I'm not expecting app support like they always do feature. It's well, always an underpowered, underwhelming experience. But I'm not buying it for that. I'm buying it to right. play back ultra high def Blu-ray disc that can shoot 60, 70, 80 megabit per second in video right. at me to that beautiful screen. And there is nothing else that can beat that streaming or otherwise. And, there and is those a, discs aren't going away anything. There may not be an 8K format anytime soon as no. far as discs go, but I say the 4K format's here to stay. The beauty of it being a non-region locked format makes it, I think, in many ways, kind of more popular in, in a sense than Blu-ray. Although I'm sure there are many more regular Blu-ray players out there for 1080p. But the 4K discs, oh. a lot of people are getting experience with disc players with the Xbox One S right. and being able to play back that content on there. And from day one, that was not a great experience. There were playback issues, and to this day, I still find it quirkier than it needs to be. Right. It wasn't nearly as smooth as, like, in general, disc playback, say, on for Blu-ray on the PlayStation 3. Mm -hmm. Every time I deal with a client, the Xbox is their primary 4K Blu-ray player, and they have a significant disc collection. They're always issues, and I end up always recommending that they go with a separate player a standalone disc unit where it's like, you know what? It's not the game console. It just it stays out of the way. 
but it does this one thing, it does it really well, and doesn't hiccup. For a lot of home theater enthusiasts, that's going to continue to be the primary gold standard. And streaming is always going to have a place, and it will continue to get better. Let's unpack that. Data is data, man. Data is data. It looks good. You know, the availability just looks sweet. Yeah, with with a properly mastered title. It got me thinking, right? Because we all said uh, Kenpo B10 tweeted, "What's the point of being a hardcore video file anymore? Hollywood doesn't care about us." Uh, And then he linked to a sound and video article. Sound and Vision, baby. Sound and Vision, sorry. Sound of, uh, my apologies. My apologies to Sound and Vision and to <laughs> Thomas J. Norton, the author, author of Is This the Video Disc Apocalypse? The point of the Sound and Vision article wasn't that Hollywood doesn't care about us, uh, but let's, let's be really honest. Hollywood is about money. Hollywood is, is an extremely complicated banking system designed to attract inv- – well, everybody for everybody but Disney. It's like designed to attract third-party investment, and the vehicle is investing in movies. It's, it just, it's, it's weird. Yeah, and it's a really weird business. I mean, like, I mean, it's not to say all of cinema is that way, no. but there, there are plenty of small projects not and great all. creative minds out there not you working know. with – to the bottom line. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, I'm, I'm being This obnoxious. will be a commercial success or else. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it fundamentally has to be, right? And and the truth is, is that Hollywood actually does care about discs because the margins are high and it affords them opportunities to delay, right? The, the whole, the monetization of movies is fascinating and someday I will get somebody worthy of explaining it onto the show to talk about it. But there's a reason why things show up, you know, first they show up in the theaters and they show up over overseas and then they show up in discs or they show up in iTunes or then they show up and there's these stages of releases and eventually it's like there's always the hardback before the soft yes. or the soft cover version <laughs> and so. there's these delays to sort of encourage people to, yeah. they wring a lot of money out of it and it's a really fascinating system Samsung probably has a lot of inventory you know Samsung just did a big partnership with Apple Samsung and Apple they don't make any money off discs so they probably don't care but when you're looking at this Think about the evolution of streaming audio. Because a couple of years ago, you and I were talking one day and I was like, oh my God, I finally saw, I was looking at Downton Abbey, which was still on Netflix to give you an idea of how long ago this was. And then Downton Abbey on the Blu-rays had just gotten from my wife. It was astonishing to me how much color saturation was lost and, and how much contrast was lost between the streaming version and the version on the disc, right? Because at that point, there's probably four plus times as much data it's impressive. Uh, on the disc as there was on the streaming version on a good day. But and you know what? Uh, you mentioned Samsung with Apple. I was like, right. what the hell's going on there? But many manufacturers at CES also mm-hmm. announced iTunes support. Yeah. There's two giants in the industry teaming up. And you know what? Suddenly, I'm sure in their minds, discs are the last thing they want to deal with. Yeah. So there. Well, they, yeah. don't, they, they can't. It's much easier to make money off of you if you rent things. But the content owners, buy, on the yeah. other hand, the, yeah, well, there's and that's that's and a, like you mentioned, discs. They have nice margins. <laughs> they have nice margins. <laughs> you can print those fairly cheap, extremely <laughs> cheaply. And, but think about and it. you can resell them in the sense that oh oh, there's a new 10th anniversary edition with extra crap and oh, oh here's the anyway. metal box edition and there's four metal boxes. Collect all four. I just wait until those thing. versions come out. In the anyway. <laughs> hence I'm four years behind my movie watching. Oh my goodness. Well, think about the evolution of streaming audio though, right? A thousand years ago, we had these like 64K, sub 128 kilobit per second streams that sounded awful. The encoders weren't, yeah. Came a long way. 
They came a long way, right? It was and the same thing, though, with MPEG video in the initial days. It's like MPEG-2 is still around, and you compare like the early MPEG-2 encodes to what they're squeezing out today at even less bit rate. Yeah. That code makes things look better over time. It's crazy, right? Because first there were... Or the improvements of the code. Make yeah. I mean, first there were sub-128 kbps streams. Then there was like the CD equivalent, 128 kilobit per second, which wasn't yeah. CD equivalent no, if no, you've but... ever actually heard a symbol in real life. And then like M4A, AAC, higher resolution MP3, Og Vorbis, and so many more codecs showed up. Og Vorbis, of course, being the, the codec that feeds uh, Spotify or power Spotify. Native on Android. I oh, love it. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And then, and then we get lossless files both in uncompressed format like wave and and compressed formats like flack uh, and alac and monkeys and another case where there were like 32 at one point it's yep. like and then eventually stuff. you get the evolution of high-res audio files which are even bigger although i argue whether or not there's any utility to high-res audio files there is definitely utility to hdr video right and there is definite utility to having the higher end audio formats and of course Dolby Atmos, which is staggeringly unavailable in most streaming services, right? But streaming services have gotten better. Spotify Premium sounds really, really good. Title Hi-Fi uh, is essentially lossless and they also do MQA encoding. Cobuzz just came out and they not only do CD quality streaming in FLAC, but they also do high res for a, a significant chunk of their catalog. All of these, of course, pale size-wise to streaming video. It's really easy now to stream audio, but 10 years ago, it was just about impossible to stream lossless audio. It's problematic, right? Because we have cases where the transfer or the encoding suck. A lot of people in the United States still have mediocre internet connections. You know, my internet connection is pretty great most of the week until Saturday night when apparently everybody in my neighborhood is streaming video. And in one particularly brutal night, uh, I was getting a one megabit connection off my 50 megabit connection. <laughs> or you just have a limited data plan. Yeah. You can't be... well, I don't have a limited data plan. <laughs> What they had was a, I think they had, had an issue with the head end. Um, so I think they, for people with mobile devices yeah. too, that's always a reason to downgrade quality, even for things like YouTube and whatnot. Not, mm -hmm. On a phone, 480p doesn't look so bad uh, yeah. compared to like, you know, 65, 75 inch LCD or OLED for that matter. Yeah, 480p so. does not look good on a on a 100 inch uh, projection oh, screen. No. <laughs> no, no, I'm not saying that, but it's acceptable and it saves you a boatload of data. So. Yeah. That's the thing. It's a trade-off. Video and audio are two dramatically different beasts. You can see how audio has come further, faster. It, yeah. it was just simply an easier thing to work with, in a sense, in terms of compression techniques and whatever. I'm not saying it's not rocket science. There's a lot of cool technology that goes into making compressed audio sound mm -hmm. nearly as good as the original. And I think in many cases, probably... The video, it's a fire hose, man, for the best quality and... Jeez, best streaming services I use right now are 16 plus megabit, or yeah, roughly. And then, like I said, discs, four, five, six times that. Bring it on. Well, it was, I mean, one of the things that was amazing for me still to think about was seeing Kaleidoscape's demo at Cedia. They get their own kind of medium format. They render their own video. They have their own catalog. They have their it's own sales a system. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful, and it's, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous video. So there's certainly the potential for streaming or downloading, you know, and then streaming after for the video call to be there. It's interesting because there are so many, and, and I also really, I think, frustrating because at one point, thanks to stars, Netflix had everything. Now, a lot of the star stuff was standard definition of being upscaled and looked kind of awful, but it was there. But now you have sort of Netflix, Amazon Prime, Google Play, uh, the iTunes Store, Vudu. I'm forgetting somebody important. I think there'll always be 
con- there will always be some content that is not available on streaming. Right. Well, and, and it's and also there'll be content like, for example, like Disney's those, pulling all of their stuff and right. all of their Marvel stuff back inside their fence next year when they launch their streaming platform. And hence that that triple pack of the Blu-ray, DVD, and H or 4K <laughs> disc all right. in one package. It's like give the DVD to the kids. I'm mm-hmm. I'm keeping the ultra high def in the lock secure cabinet as well. You should. Well, it's and it's and then I don't have to worry about you know what service has it if it's a favorite movie, but. And that's streaming. A, yeah. streaming is convenient, though. It there's, is convenient, but no it can be really frustrating because there. How many? I'm I'm thinking of there's like one movie I spent like you know two hours trying to find online again, but it's it's not in anybody's catalog right now, so I can't get it. Like I um, go to try to watch Aliens. Oh my god! Or the original Alien. Or, Apparently coming out in 4K later this year. Okay. Let's we'll uh, see. I, that's the other thing too. We're talking all about encoders and 4K and this transition forward. Most of the movies we're even looking at in 4K, a lot of the virtual effects and things like that are shot in 2K still right. or, or editing in that format and then upscaled at the end. It will be nice when everything through the pipeline, they're using like above 4K cameras to shoot the content, capturing it in raw, editing yeah. it, even the virtual effects all done or the visual effects all done to just a, a T and then it will continue to improve over time. But at least we have a bucket container that supports not only a color palette that we can't even properly take advantage of yet right. with any display as well as a brightness scale that's 10 times or greater than the original and that's just fantastic in addition to four you know four times the resolution <laughs> that's always nice but more pixels it's just one of those things that's messy and it's going to be messy i mean i'm kind of excited criterion channel for example they're going to be launching uh, april 8th so the Criterion Collection is launching their own streaming Ooh, channel. That should be nice. Yeah, if you sign up, there, you can go there and sign up now, and they have new movies, like a surprise movie every Wednesday. That's going to be $11 per month or 100 bucks for a year. they got about 1,000 or so movies in their catalog. They're going to cycle them in. But That'd like, be a nice gift for somebody. Yeah. And if it's, you're into that. It's a really if and that I hear people like, oh, why isn't this available on Blu-ray? And it's like, well, because it takes money. That's something that yeah. we've said and we'll say it again. A lot of our favorite movies. Sure, a lot of from, these movies may be in Blu-ray, yes. but maybe in not the Criterion cases, edition. But right. well, maybe they are. It's worth checking. There are tens of thousands of movies, and a lot of them never made it to DVD. A lot of them never made it to VHS. Never made it to DVD. They, you know, they they may never make it to Blu-ray. You know, because I had movies popping up, full movies to watch now popping up in my YouTube stream, right? In my feed, that was different. Yeah, it's kind of odd. Yeah, uh, and you, you think that YouTube? <laughs> I was like, Wait, is that a full Rodney Dangerfield movie on Big? It's <laughs> so like, odd. <laughs> well, it's it's back to school or something. Yeah, it's you know, it's gonna it's be like, where the hell did this come from? Yeah. Who pirated this? Oh, YouTube. <laughs> and, and how good was the original content, or how good was the original oh, format please. before YouTube compressed it? You can watch that in 480p. It's still yeah, that's true. You'd still, yeah, that's his facial expressions were huge. Oh man! But like Criterion for their streaming catalog, it's uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth, uh, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, Kurosawa's The Seven Samurai, which is always awesome. I'm I'm really curious to watch a streaming version of The Seven Samurai, uh, Twelve Angry Men, that's Sidney Lumet, uh, Robert Altman's Three Women, Fritz Lang's M, which is an amazing and terrifying movie, Lawton's The Night of the Hunter, um, Ingmar Bergman's Persona. Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, one of my favorite movies of all time. If you're looking for quality movies, you can't find them on Blu-ray. You can try the Criterion channel. It's it's odd to watch, right? Because also at the same time, we're looking at all of this messiness around whether or not discs are going to be available. 
try to remember that Netflix just produced a movie that took an Oscar for Best Director in Cinematography. Nice. And as a company, they're going to want that to look as good as possible. So I think they're going to continue to try to push the quality of the 4K they serve. Will it be as good as a Blu-ray of Roma? No. No. <laughs> but, but it'll be hard to tell. Unless you really have a good setup. So. It'll be a lot harder to tell the difference in 4K five years from now than it is today. When things like 75 plus inch screens are way more common. Yeah. 4K is going to be everywhere. And in theory, hopefully everybody has better internet. That, we'll also have TVs that are capable of better color and brighter brights and darker darks. And well, I think, you know. Beautiful contrast. Beautiful contrast. It will be so nice. But I, I think. I think it's all rolling. And I think anybody predicting the disc is on its way out. Yeah, probably. Not yet. It's going to take a long time. There are a lot of discs scheduled. It is still a popular medium. Like, is it as popular in stores? No, but they're making money in other places. So you can still buy them. But I like what Thomas J. Norton uh, said at Sound and Vision. No relationship, by the way. Never met the man. You know, which is that if you want discs to be around, buy them. <laughs> you know, stream less, buy more, which is a little consumery. But, you know, there are advantages to having your gear, your, your your discs available along with your gear and to be able to see your favorite movies in the best possible format. Totally. totally. That is it, man. You know, I also like the fact that uh, Mr. Norton from Sound and Vision also pointed out uh, that if you don't buy discs, quote, the format could die just as did the vinyl LP. Oh, wait. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It's also a lot more complicated to produce a disc uh, than a vinyl LP, but I, I don't know. We wait... With bated breath, sure, gentlemen. But it is all far from over. Also, Kaleidoscape, make something I can afford. Please. I beg you. Uh, you had some fun with calibration tools. Yeah. Actually, I had a question from somebody at Pandora Longhorn, which is basically asking me what my calibration tool setup was. Ooh. And... I talk about SpectraCal's CalMan software quite mm -hmm. a bit, and that's the like the backbone of what I use. There are a few apps out there you can actually drive calibration tools with. Some are open, in a sense, where you can get them for low or no cost if you already have some gear. They are usually, it's the hardware compatibility that can be a challenge. So if you have a, maybe an older obscure meter, it might be hard to find actual software support for something like that outside of maybe what it originally came with. But if you look around and you troll the forums, you will find that there are avenues for finding affordable hardware. As far as what I connect to a display to provide the test patterns and the signals that I need for actually calibrating, I use something called a VideoForge Pro. It's been around for a little while under a few names, but this little box is just convenient for the fact that it'll spit out up to 4K 60. I can run through that, any color format, RGB component, you name it, as well as HDR10 and Dolby Vision and HLG, anything I need. And it also links to my software with a USB cable. So my software, the Calman software, can actually drive the signal generator to say, oh, put up a 10% white window, put up a full screen red panel. Here, let's just go through some quick checks of built-in test patterns and things like that. It's really nice to be able to automate that somewhat. For the meters that I use, the big one I use is that Klein K10A. That thing's a beast. It's a, it's a colorimeter that has very accurate filtering in it. However, uh, and it's compatible with light output up to like 10,000 nits. So I can pretty much point that at any display device out there today. That's pretty and bright. To be able to read it without it frying itself. However, it is in a sense kind of a dumb meter. It, it isn't really aware of the specific differences in colorimetry mm -hmm. between different display devices. So 
it really requires something like a spectrophotometer or, or something that can photon count and tell you exactly what color that is as a reference first. And for that, I use something called the X-Rite i1 Pro 2. And that's a sweet little meter. That's actually something you could use just standalone. But when it comes to measurement speed, the X-Rite is really slow but stupid accurate. And the Clyde K10A can be very accurate if it's profiled first. And when I say profile, I'll take that X-Rite with the software that I use and measure the primary and secondary colors. Actually, I think it's just the primary colors. And by measuring those with a very good spectro device, mm-hmm. it can then apply that correction to the Klein K10A and provide literally the speed of that client K10A with the accuracy of something like a spectrometer. And that just gives me not only better performance when it's really dark, the test pattern or color I'm trying to measure, uh, as well as just overall speed and consistency. And that thing just rocks. What's the biggest challenge? I think it's just, especially with the new formats, the way things change, as far as coming up with methodologies to calibrate something like, say, Dolby Vision or HDR10, and then testing that, verifying it, figuring out, oh, is there, are there quirks in the software? Are there quirks still in the hardware uh, regarding the display device itself? And it's just being aware of where the pitfalls can be. And you really do have to like double check every stupid little setting when you're, especially when you're switching right. between calibrating different formats, say like Rec 709 color for the the standard HD and TV we always watch, as well as something like, say, Dolby Vision or HDR10, where you're, you're dealing with a, a completely different color palette and detail and signal processing. When you're switching between different workflows, quote unquote, it's really good to just double check every setting. It's like one little thing that didn't get carried <laughs> over. Measure twice, cut once. And if you're living right on the bleeding edge, you're updating your software all the time. Not all the time, but say like every couple months with something kind of new that's been tweaked and you got to just kind of go back in and verify everything works the way you think it does and in order to be very, very consistent and, and to know the weaknesses of your hardware. Right. That's the big one. Uh, the big one is the Klein K10A actually includes some built-in profiles for things like an LCD, uh, an OLED display, a, a projector with a certain type of lamp. Those are all okay, but they're not as accurate as they can be if you profile it using something like that spectrometer, uh, like the X-Rite i1 Pro or, or a Jedi. Or, there's a bunch of companies that make very, very good spectrometers. Spectrophotometers or spectroradiometers, uh, usually the radiometers. The presets are never what you think they'll be. <laughs> it's just, yeah. Besides that, all your, all your other standard stuff, man. I also have some very bizarre cables for connecting to very unique displays that either require odd ways of getting a, a LUT table inserted or a firmware update or for control. Nowadays, thankfully, a lot of displays and projectors are switching over to just using network connections for internal control. Right. However, Samsung's still sticking to this... Uh, Eighth-inch mini jack. <laughs> it looks like a headphone jack, and it requires a serial connection. But still, it works. It has its uses, and it's and it's and it does its thing. But and then oh. other than that, just a way to manage uh, getting all that gear to and fro. A couple of tripods, things like that. Pelican cases. People on speed dial. In case I have questions, I take lots of pictures. Phone's always with me. <laughs> when you take pictures, are you, are you taking pictures of the pixels of the screen? Uh, the, or the settings, and after? usually. Just, okay. just a quick way to document 8 million settings really fast. One nice thing is with the software I use, mm-hmm. sometimes if I have direct display control where I can actually manipulate settings in the TV just by clicking on an interface with my computer, I then get a nice table that shows me all of that in one, she- in one shot. Whereas like last night I was working on a Samsung LCD where we wanted to go back and record 
the grayscale setup. Right. And it turns out, okay, there's the two-point balance we did, and then there's the 20-point balance. So I'm literally taking 25 pictures of different screens just to make sure we had all that information recorded. You could just write it all down, but it, I just find it easier to snap a photo of it just to say let alone if you're ever going to change something and you're really uncertain of what you're doing, make sure you take pictures of everything first. <laughs> so just, it's like, or well, leave a video running. It's I'm, something for a reference. I'm laughing because somebody asked me like, that'll get your heart to stop. What's your favorite tool when you're working on your truck? And I'm like, you know, it's not my super cool Matco three eighths inch wrench. I, I bought uh, at a pawn shop in Wyoming 12 years ago. It's my, my cell phone camera because I take oh. pictures of everything as I'm taking it apart. You can really... Nitro gloves and then probably, yeah, the cell phone <laughs> and my favorite flashlight. But as, I mean, as silly as that sounds, oh. and also I, I want to shout out Cambridge Audio for putting every... On the, on the back of Cambridge Audio components, if you look at it from behind, the name of what every single port on the back is or jack on the back is is labeled, but they also put them upside down and above every single oh, jack on the back so that when nice. you're leaning over the back of a stereo <laughs> cabinet, you can see which is the left and which is the right or which is the in, which input is which. But That's pretty cool. It is really cool, but it makes me laugh that it's still, you know, the, the camera, when you get in there, because I've, I've, I was thinking about this a lot because I, I have a new camera, the one I was using at, at CES to ah. take photos and videos, you know, and you start digging in those menus and those are relatively, you know, if there's some arcane, like, are you a photo geek? If not, you're going to have to spend some quality time on the internet to figure out what this means. You can get it though. You can get it, but it, it takes but it's, practice. it's immensely frustrating because if you go from TCL to Hisense to L to Samsung, to Sony, to whoever, to Epson, to every one of them has a different name for some of the same exact things across. Right. And I find that just irritating as all hell. <laughs> that I that I get. Um, you get it a lot more than I do. It doesn't matter what you're going to calibrate. You just kind of have to know what, you have to know everything you can about it. I, before I touch any product, generally, I'll take a look through the damn owner's manual. Just to, <laughs> I'll get a look at the remote. I'll I'll get a pic I'll pull up a picture of the input panel. I'll just see if there's any known craziness afoot regarding that particular display. Figure out the best way to calibrate it. Right. Like with some projectors nowadays, they almost have built in not built in, but the manufacturer will provide software tools to assist with the calibration. To either in an automated fashion or a way that just makes the results so much better than trying to struggle through it manually. Not struggle, but a time consuming process of going through something manual. Someday it'll all be automated. Mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still recovering from my, my gig. I didn't get home till like one thirty this morning. Uh, no, I'm probably home by about midnight, but no, it was after midnight for sure. Got oh. home before 1am after a, a good long session with a, what was it? A 2018 Samsung Q8 QLED TV, the eight series. That's kind of shiny. It was. It was interesting. It was surprisingly out of whack, out of the box. Really? I want to see more of these. That had one of the worst out-of-the-box movie modes I've seen out of a Samsung. I And that was an 8 series. That's not like a cheap TV. It was a 75-inch one, too. Maybe it, it was, was somebody bought it and returned it. <laughs> this was the second one the owner had. So it, it, they went through one that had uniformity issues, and it was unacceptable to them. I think it was a, the box was damaged or something. And... If memory serves, I think the owner mentioned something about trying to take the cabinet apart to fix it themselves. Anyway, <laughs> things you should not do. Uh, well, no, I take that back. Uh, at least for brand new things. Anyway. I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm pretty aggressive about 
taking things apart to fix them. But this makes me want to do some research real quick because either Samsung, when they when I used to review their TVs and they would send me units, they're either really handpicking some nice units or the calibration maybe isn't as hot as it used to be. I got to verify with a couple other similar units though to right. see because I was just, movie modes generally should be pretty accurate on, on, on most TVs, be it a, you know the cinema or movie mode preset. It should be accurate to the spec used in Hollywood. And when it's not, it's like, okay, I'm usually expecting it to be off a little bit, but leave me something to do. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't make it perfect right from the factory, for crying out loud. Well, there's a, there, that costs it, money. You would think it's not a particularly thin line between perfect and train wreck. Like, there, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of... I mean, no, I, I've seen... I've been in the assembly rooms at Samsung, and I've right. seen them actually calibrating sets before they go in the box, at least, you know. Putting, putting the similar meters that I use right up on the screen and running through the internals and making sure it's there. But Maybe it was a Monday or a Friday. That's TV. what I... It's like, I, I want to see more units. I can't just judge this all upon right. the one unit I, I witnessed last night, but a that was different. My, a friend of mine manufactures hardware, and one of the things he says is, you know, for a typical electronics manufacturer, 3% failure rate is normal. I, yeah. Um, I would hope they strive for... As much I, they, that, I think but, everybody you know. strives for zero, but... Yeah. Um, you, you can know. have people, uh, yeah, they're, and they're, delivery folks sometimes who maybe not keep the box upright and gentle. And <laughs> <laughs> wait, don't throw that off the back of the truck. <laughs> oh my goodness! Please. At JW Brins tweets at Robert Heron at Patrick Norton at AVXL. I am looking to upgrade to Atmos. Would you install speakers in the ceiling or use bounce speakers? Ceiling. Uh, yeah, if if you can make it work, put four speakers in the ceiling. If you had eight, if you have eight foot ceilings or higher, put them up there. Yeah. Uh, you know, four speakers in the ceiling, followed by two speakers in the ceiling, followed by bounce speakers. But I will yeah. say, I'm I'm convinced that if you can do four, do four, and put them in the ceiling. Oh yeah, no yeah. regrets. It does sound delicious. You know, it's cool that they can bounce it off the ceiling. If you can have the audio start above you, it's just easier. And fire if you have a fire up an Xbox ceiling, and listen to that yeah. Dolby Atmos demo, and then fire up a couple of games and oh. Good golly. Yeah. That was, it sounds impressive. Fine gravity. <laughs> it really, really does. Fine gravity. <laughs> uh, the opening scene of gravity is is the most terrifying Atmos experience ever. Uh, I think I have that movie. I got to watch that. It's good. I know. If you're into terror. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm more of a, do you ever see Moon? Yeah. Yeah, that was great. That's my kind of <laughs> dark ass sci-fi right there. Dark ass sci-fi. Well, that and Black Mirror. That's yeah. Vandersnatch. You got to go play Vandersnatch sometime. I'm just not I ready to. There's hey. certain things I don't need percolating through my subconscious. Eh, I, it's messy there. I don't need help. I think there should have been more choices. That's my only complaint. <laughs> but that's hard to make. Someday I'll get brave enough to look at that. Just as soon as I get through that fourth episode of the uh, Umbrella Academy. There you go. Oh, my goodness. You've been listening to uh, AVXL. And uh, I'm yeah, Patrick you have. <laughs> I am Robert Heron. And we will catch you next week. I want to give a shout out to all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash AVXL. We really, really appreciate your Heck contributions. Yeah. And uh, we will talk to each and every one of you very soon.